All right, welcome back to Architecture Marketing Podcast. Um, I'm Dave Sharp and from Vanity Projects and I'm with Nick Granlace at Bowbird <laughs> Commons in Collingwood. Nick, introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Nick Granlace. I am an architect who then became an architectural photographer and I'm also one of the co-founders of Bowbird.io. So Bowbird is, there's probably like three different apps that I know of on the internet that are specifically narrowing in on architecture. Like you don't even go as far as saying we are for interior designers, it's like architects. Mm. Is that, is that because like architecture is just, is it because it's what you did? Like I'm in a similar position, I did architecture, so I'm kind of passionate about it and just sort of stuck in it forever. Or do you feel there's something specifically like unique about the architecture media? that like lends itself to what you're doing? I think there's probably two things there. Yeah. I think on one hand, architectural media is definitely very specific mm. because it's so project-based and it has a culture of having projects photographed and there's just a lot of publications who are looking for that content. But there's also a just a, a business choice there to focus on one area. If you think about media itself, it's just a huge uh, area. You could really spread yourself too thin and so coming from the architectural background for us, it's so much easier to focus on that. And as you do that, you end up with a tool which is very, very targeted and you, you end up with features and things that nobody else would ever want to have, but they work really well for architects. Yeah, because there's something unique about, I guess, like the media kit that doesn't really all... Okay, so to go back to the beginning <laughs> a little bit, Bowbird, like how would you describe it as a platform? It's like you've got, you've built this community of all these journalists, all these architects, pretty much like every publication is involved at, mm. in, in some way on there. You've got direct access to them and you build these media kits that help to extract out the, inf the critical sort of storytelling and also factual information about your projects. And yeah. then you just have this transfer of that sort of stuff. and Absolutely. You know, so, yeah, so the media kit yeah. is the center of everything on Bowerbird. Yeah. And the idea there is that we've reversed, engineer, we've reversed engineered what an architectural story is, mm. and that has building block information. So we pull all of that out, but the overall structure of Bowerbird is like a social network, but mm. it's around this one activity. And that activity is getting stories published around architecture. And so the people on the social network are architects, journalists, and photographers, and they're all in there trying to achieve the same thing. Mm, mm, mm. So the architectural media, like I, I feel like as Bowbird has come along and started talking about it a lot more, because you guys put out a lot of content, very active on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter and every, everywhere. I think everybody's thinking a lot more about the media now than they were like a few years ago, like that it's this really important part of the industry. Absolutely. Like, I, I think it is. And I, yeah. I think it's changed as well. So we did some research uh, recently where we mapped out when publications were being established in, for architecture. And we saw this huge spike come out of about midway through uh, the 80s. And ever since then, we've been getting more and more media. Before that point, we didn't really have a media um, world for architects. Mm. There was a couple notable exceptions like Domus or um, Architecture Australia here in Australia. But really, there really wasn't much room for the average architect to be published. It was only a handful of architects right at the top who were getting any of their projects out. And as we move towards Instagram, where everybody has an account and they have access to published content, I think that's changed the landscape completely. 
It seems like a really good time to be a photographer. Have you sort of considered dipping your toes back in a little bit? Or, uh, or you... well, yeah, I still shoot. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They're more like, yeah. you know, having past clients good, that I Good relationships, so you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I still enjoy it. It yeah. still keeps you in that world. So you're yeah. understanding, you know, keeping your eye in, in the right spot, yeah. seeing the changes in photography and so forth. But yeah, I do think it is. I think it's a growing market. And I, mm. you think about things like um, this, you know, this percentage which is sort of uh, thrown out there, the 5% of buildings in the world are designed by architects. And, you know, who knows if that's accurate or not. But the main thing there is that it's a growth area because if you can move the needle by 1% or 2%, yeah. suddenly there's a lot more architecture. And if we're talking about architecture more, then we end up with a positive cycle mm. where more of the general public are coming to contact with architecture and so what they're thinking of as possible has been broadened and so yes for photography and architects i think that is going to grow and grow and grow yeah i think like on any platform whether it's like publications or social media the algorithms which kind of run everything tend to favor architecture they tend to support architecture and like going forward maybe like maybe other kind of um other ways of getting buildings, like the other sort of 95%, will just kind of slide into sort of irrelevancy a little bit, maybe. I don't know, that might be asking for a bit much. Well, definitely the internet is biased yeah. towards images. Yeah. I mean, photography has been leading the way online yeah. for probably 10 or 15 years now. Yeah. If you want to see what's happening, go have a look at what photographers are doing. Yeah. I mean, that's where blogging really took off. That's where social networks really took off. Uh, things like Flickr, you know, the sharing of images. And you see that now with Instagram just sort of exploding. Mm, mm. Instagram has definitely, Instagram has a weird role. Like I, I would love to get your thoughts on like what you think architects think Instagram is for their business. What do architects think? Yeah, what it, so, yeah. so I've, what I've always enjoyed yeah. like yeah. having like these little chats and yeah. phone calls with you about Nick is like the, the architecture psychology, like the psychology of the architect. I find it really interesting because a, a very special kind of person that does is so passionate about the outcome of what they do, probably not as passionate on the business side. But then again, there's if you make a podcast about getting published or I write a blog post about fixing your website or you write websites for architects, those things just blow up with traffic. So I think maybe sometimes we're a little bit too hard. There's, there is like a lot of architects that are seeking out content. There isn't much of it. And I think Instagram opened that up for yeah. them. I think Instagram was the gateway drug to be able to think about architecture um, as a business and how you market and how you find clients. And not just to get more clients through the door, but to get more clients that you actually want. Mm. And that's a huge difference. And the reason Instagram did that was because it was so simple and it was image-based. So architects naturally align with images rather than other social networks like Twitter. Mm. Like I was huge on Twitter, loved it, still, still I love Twitter. It. Twitter's the only thing I have on my phone. <laughs> I don't even have, like... It's, it's just a different network, you know, it's about ideas. And so it's mm. about text and linking to articles. And that never seemed to work as well uh, for architects. But Instagram has the ability to just take a snapshot of whatever you're working on and then share it with the world, it works especially because architects are doing interesting things. So for the rest of the world, watching people make drawings and models and then being on site and then having this amazing object which is finished, that's easily shareable content. Mm. So I think it just naturally works. And then what you see is the results 
of what comes from sharing that content. And so architects now have these massive audiences on Instagram. And like my friend uh, Jolien Robinson up in Noosa, he's killing it on Instagram. He's getting clients through Instagram and it's changed his entire practice. It's like this mm. app on his phone, you know, sharing a few images. Mm. And suddenly he doesn't have to think about marketing, but he's doing all the things that he probably should be doing. Yeah, yeah. Like a marketing, um, Instagram, like it almost becomes like a proxy for your website. I mean, like most of the clients we work with, easily get like a thousand visitors a week on their Instagram account and that's even when they're relatively small accounts and then it just kind of goes up from there and you know their websites don't get that like I typically see like 500 hits a month on websites most of it comes from Google yep. it's not based on seeing something well I mean a lot of the time they're googling their name but generally like they're getting so much more exposure on their Instagram account it also has all the same buttons email me phone me find directions and it shows their entire portfolio and their bio or like their their kind of about me is almost like their Instagram stories, I think, is an equivalent of that if they're, if they're using them. So like, I mean, you originally wrote websites for architects, like the, the, the definitive sort of online handbook on like everything and all the mistakes and like pitfalls that an architect can fall into with their website. Do you think that like, I, th I almost feel like websites have for, for architects have come to this point where they, they almost like don't really serve so much of a purpose anymore or like they've kind of gone into this weird kind of like existential crisis where they're like, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. So then they're just like a portfolio and they've almost gone back to what, what it was before you wrote that guide. Yeah, you, yeah, I think you're definitely right in some respect. Yeah. Um, the way I think about all of these things, because they always change. Mm. So as soon as we say one thing is the way to do it, yeah. it quickly changes. Yeah. But they all work on the same principle, which is, you know, you have somewhere that people go, so you need to have some sort of asset, and you need traffic to go to that asset, and then you need somebody to do something once they get there, like contact you. And, you know, for a business, that's how it works. So the great thing about Instagram is, well, the content you're putting up is the photos. Instagram's providing the audience, so you don't have to think about the hard part. And then once they give you these buttons to actually contact you, they've completed that cycle. The, so thinking along those lines, a website can do exactly the same thing, but you have to generate the audience. So if you've got an amazing blog or you've got some other source of traffic, you can do the same thing. It's, it's just really hard, mm. whereas Instagram is a relatively easy process. But again, you still got to build up that audience, mm. which is why I always come back to architectural media, because you can tap into somebody else's audience. The challenge there is you need the, somewhere for that audience to go. So mm. you still need a website, mm. or you need, mm. you need people to be able to find you. And so uh, what I think is a really good combo is you go Instagram, architectural publications, and then have your website thinking of it as a contact form more than anything else. Yeah, of course. It's somewhere for people to call you, to send you emails, and to probably find out a little bit more about you, where the other mediums, which tend to be very image-based or project-based, they're still not getting to the person behind the, that work. And that's where people, I think, uh, start to build up a relationship with people. So you start to understand the architect, what motivates them. And if somebody understands that, I think then they're far more likely to choose that architect over just some a random assortment of architects based on price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's one thing that's sort of missing in that, that sort of three part there, the Instagram, the media, and 
the uh, website is I feel like where is the, you know, why, why is it, why do you think that people are happy to start the process of engaging an architect without having any understanding of the business in, in, in terms of how does it work? What, what do you charge? Like, or, you know, like all these kind of, so when we're like, I, about 5% of my work is working with people outside architecture. And these are just friends that have businesses and I help them do stuff with that for their marketing. And we're always worrying about, okay, we make, we don't make sales on the site because we're not answering objections that the customer has. And we're not, you know, making them feel confident in this, this, and this. And then I look to the other 95% of my work, which is the architecture work. And going like we're not even close to <laughs> saying anything about the objections of the customer, or like, or anything about the process, or the like. So there's this certain like magic to it. Like, do you just think it's magic, or do you think that like there's something that could change there? Like, maybe we do have to talk more. Like, we sell something, and people are buying it, and it costs money, and there's certain concerns around the thing. I think there's two forces pulling in different directions. So there's all this knowledge around marketing and all of the things you said. And they're really useful. Like we use them all the time because we've mm. we have lots of customers, so we have to figure out what are they actually trying to solve, what's their problems, how do we help them do that? At the the problem with that in architecture is we're not doing exactly the same thing. We're not doing just a rational job of, hey, you need something built. We build yeah. this building for the lowest possible price. <laughs> we overcome all your objections. Mm. We're actually designing something which has an individual style. There's some status attached to it as well, but they're also very slow moving projects. So people aren't just going, I'm gonna click on a button and choose my architect yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. They're choosing an architect over probably following them or yeah, engaging yeah, with them yeah. over a year or two years. Mm -hmm. So it feels like to me that you can learn all this stuff from what other businesses are doing, but then you need to translate it into mm -hmm. architecture. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with something that's, it doesn't look like marketing, it's really yes. things like storytelling. Yeah. So you tell good stories and suddenly you're doing exactly the same thing, but it's in a far more digestible format and it's not a big flashing banner saying 50% yeah, yeah. off, which just doesn't, it's, it's just the wrong sort of yeah, market. For yeah, that. absolutely. I just find it interesting that it, like, so you, you mentioned sort of the status element, the, the, the customized kind of element. It's, I, I'm just interested in that. It's, that. it's that sort of mystical, shamanistic part that's just like, it, it is, it is, um, it transcends like commerce. It's it has these transcendent qualities. But like a builder, okay, so like a builder, their website would be like if you go to Metricon's website, it's like, you know, guaranteed great lifestyle, you know, fast completion, um, blah, 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 just easy steps to the process. Like, you know, it just, it is this sort of, it is a sales deck, so to speak. Um, you know, so they don't have to do that. But there's something about architecture. Is it because like it's a, like a profession, like like medicine, or is it just the status that architects have in society, or is it the stat? Is it? It's like you. It's like you don't go in. Maybe it's like you don't go into like the the Prada store and complain about like getting ten percent off on the bag because it's like that's not. You don't do that at the Prada store. Is that the kind of thing? Is it like a luxury thing or? Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on there. You know. There's probably a wide range of architecture, but we sort of lump it all in yeah, one yeah. group. We, we lump it at the good. We lump at the good stuff. That's <laughs> and um, and I think what we do is we we follow the past, and I think architecture has been changing, and I think it's been broadening. So if we went back even just thirty years, but let's say fifty years, the 
general public probably couldn't afford architecture. You had to be really wealthy to be able to engage somebody to work on your home. And so the people who were engaging architects would have been, let's say, quite high up on the social status. And so the idea of this beautiful piece of artwork, this unique thing, it's, you know, it's like buying a Ferrari, which is worth you know, $3.2 million because it's 57 years old and who knows what. Mm. And so there's that magic of having this unique thing. But architecture is starting to broaden and that's part of media as well, I think, as it's getting out to the general public. There's lots of people who are not looking for that unique uh, object. They're looking for better design. They're looking for somewhere that they can raise their family. They want to get away from this cookie cutter box and they want good, solid um, mm. you know, work. You know, it reminds me of uh, wine. So we, we go to this little wine shop up on Bridge Road and it's set up from these two lovely ladies who came out of Coles and so they're pretty ochre. But they treat wine with so much respect, but without any pomp. And so they know more about wine than I've ever met anybody in the world. And they can tell you all this stuff, but they're trying to make it accessible to more people. And I think there's a big, a big area in architecture that can do the same thing, where we're actually talking about um, mums and dads, offices, whoever it is, and just appreciating design, but not treating it as this is this unique thing that I have, but this is actually better for my for my life, for my work, you know, it's just something that you want to do to have a better space. Mm, mm. Do you think that obviously the media plays a role in that? But look, we've both run, at, you currently run, and I have run Instagram accounts where we act like publishers, where we're publishing stuff, and we sort of know what kind of work just is like when you see a picture, you just go like, yeah, that's going to be, that's a 1,500, 1,600 like photo versus another one you're like, yeah, it's a 200 like. That's not really going to reach many people. There's this sort of like, there is this kind of, um, and I think this is a common complaint about something like Instagram. So like that I agree completely with the story about, you know, that is not only, that's as much us reacting to the trend of like what society's demand is changing. Like that's what they kind of want as it expands. But like where we are putting out content um, it's a common criticism of something like Instagram is that, well, it's very like just kind of like glossy and superficial and there's always this problem that maybe we almost are a little bit um, cocooned in that sort of luxury status object thing. Um, but, you know... I agree. Uh, but it depends I, how you use it, I guess. Well, right? we see some interesting trends. Yeah. So in Bowerbird, we see a lot of projects come through and then we see which projects that the journalists are picking up on. And we're often surprised. Mm. And some of the things that um, don't fit into that glossy mold are being picked up. And one of them is this um, context shot. So projects which, it's a new project, but it's surrounded by older buildings. And that creates a great story for journalists. Now the building itself may not be the opera house, but in that context, that's a really engaging story. Mm. I also think it's about the content that we create as architects. So if the only content we create is an image with no story, then guess what? It's yeah. going to float to the top. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. the, the most beautiful photo. But if we actually start to create content, like more in-depth content, things like rich stories, videos, um, where we actually go into the people behind the project, not just this, you know, facade, yeah. which is the photo. Yeah. Well, that's how we tell real stories, and that's where you see things like Grand Designs. Mm. Like Grand Designs is an amazing show, in my view, mm. because it actually takes you through the journey of the struggle, rather than just, 
here's this glossy thing at the end of it. It's going, actually, this was really hard. Here are the people who were involved. Here's the places where they almost fell over, but they kept fighting to achieve this uh, goal. Sometimes there was compromises, but look at this thing that they've created at the end. So I, I think it's really about the stories that we choose to put out into the world rather than just whatever gets published. Mm, mm. It surprises me that more, like, I think this comes into a problem where there are so many opportunities. Like, I think a firm, I think I've said this before on a, on a podcast, but a firm could come along and make 15-minute grand design segments filmed on their phone and tell that, tell that story and just borrow that same sort of narrative arc from grand designs. And instead of it being on TV, it's on Facebook and YouTube. And probably like 100,000 people would watch it, like depending. I mean, if they, if they got lucky. Um, but I guess... You know, we would love to see that sort of stuff happen because, like, from an architecture media perspective, we're like, wow, that would be... Imagine, like, 60,000 of those people would have never seen a story like that before or, like, what the Melbourne version of it looks like or, or whatever it is. But then we look at the actual... The architecture firm that would need to produce something like that and they're small and they're maybe, like, one to three people and they're kind of looking at this situation and going, like, why do I need to put out a video that gets me 100,000 views. You know, like there's this, what I find is that in so many other industries, you'll have countless people that are motivated to try and have a big YouTube channel or a big Facebook, yeah. you know, whatever. Or, I mean, we do have it a little bit in Instagram, but generally there isn't this sort of, there isn't this sort of drive to be, to be very well known or to create some sort of content on the internet that a lot of people will flock to. Have you yeah. picked up on this, like, a little bit? Yeah, as, as I, you're saying that, I'm thinking it through and going, yeah, photographers really jumped on board early. They wrote yep. blogs. Like, one of the, the big things lacking uh, on the web, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, is very few architects actually wrote down what they're doing. Yeah. You compare <laughs> that to photographers, and there's basically a treasure trove of information about how to take a photo. Like, mm. I learned just mm. by mm. reading mm. blog posts and watching videos. Yep. And that's a knowledge base which is now shared with the world. In architecture, we never did that. So it's like we held all that knowledge internally and we didn't want to share it yep. to our own detriment yep. because once that information is out, we can all learn from it. And then if we get into a culture of sharing, then as you learn things, you write it down, you put it out into the world and everything speeds up. So yeah, I think there is, there is an element of being a little bit more open with what we do. But then I also understand that you know some projects you know, they carry a lot of risk and so people don't want to talk about the projects themselves because they don't want to get sued if they talk about the things that went wrong. Mm. But I think that's a cultural shift. I, I would still feel like it's better to share more than to, to hold it all back. Mm. Mm. Um, but the other interesting thing there is access to content. So the things that get published is based around what those journalists can access. So if we don't provide it, who is going to provide it? And you look at something like video, Video should be huge. Video is this tipping point in architectural media, which at any point should just be everywhere. And I keep looking at it going, nobody's doing it. And it's because yeah. the cost of video is too high for the publications to make it, and the architects aren't providing it. And you need a tipping point. You need enough content from architects so that a publication can say, I'm gonna publish one post a week or one post a, a day, which means you need a like a, a fair amount of content. And then if you want to choose high quality content, you need even more than that. But you go, once we get, let's say drone videos or whatever it is, then we will end up with a whole new medium, which has just been sitting there left dormant. 
even though photographers have been going wild with it for 10 or 15 years and, and lots of other industries as well. Video is something that just doesn't seem to come along. Like it just, I mean, you mentioned production costs, but it's not really a production cost anymore. Uh, I guess drone, I think drones are, drones, drones are really re yeah. reducing that down. Yeah. And especially drones, like small ones inside, being able to move around a project. But I think we get trapped in the same problem. We're always talking about the project. Mm. Whereas talking about um, behind the scenes, that's been a classic thing yeah. that, you know, companies all over the world have been doing for like, I think over a, a century. <laughs> like, you know, when they first opened up factories to say, this is how we make whiskey, or this is how yes. we make fridges. Yeah. People really respond to that. Yeah. Because you get to see behind the scenes, and so you get you're invested in that story of how something is created, mm. which which again yeah. is why grand designs are so great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've seen it like literally an example of. I mean, you mentioned um, sort of withholding all that professional information about how the job is done. Um, I worked with a client who, an architecture firm, who just took like little relevant sort of snippets and segments from some book that the institute puts out like just sort of guidelines on certain practices and policies and just started putting those as blog posts on her blog and quickly she had about 4,000 hits a month just wow. on those like five or six blog posts and it's like it's an example where she didn't even there was no even creative outlet but the, people are googling the information like what is practical completion and like how do fees work and like they're not even getting it from like they're not even the it's in a physical book somewhere on an architect's desk. It's not even like on the institute's website necessarily. So any firm that puts out this really basic information, um, and there is actually quite I think when you put out in information about the trade, there is actually a lot of intent behind people that are searching for those kinds of things. Oh, for sure. Like, well, and, and that's a big part of traffic, isn't it? Yeah. So it's great to have 20,000 people see your Instagram post, yep. but if they don't have any intent yep. or they don't have the ability to yep. take the next step, which is to contact the architect, yep. it's all vanity metrics. Yeah. And so what you're looking for is somebody who's looking for an architect. Yeah. But then you, I almost think that for architecture, you want to slow down the client. You want to... Yeah, 100%. So this idea yep. that somebody has just found you, they've never met you and then press contact, mm. that's not good for, in my mind as mm. an architect. You want them to actually understand your story, mm. to understand what you believe in, what you're mm. trying to achieve, so that when it does come time for them to choose an architect, they've already got it firmly in their head that they're choosing you. Mm. And what that does two things. It gets rid of architecture being a commodity where somebody just gets three quotes mm. and then chooses the lowest quote. Mm. And it also means that you break outside of your referral network. Like referral networks are powerful, but there's this assumption that because somebody refers somebody to you, that they match you, and that doesn't actually match. So, for yeah. example, let's say you, your thing is pink water tanks. You design with pink water tanks, and you have a client who commissioned you because they love that style. And then they told their friends, and their friend turned up because, you know, they're friends with Joe, and but they don't really like pink water tanks. And now you have this conflict and you're forming this partnership, which essentially is what architecture is. It's not a service it's, and it's not selling shoes. You're creating a partnership which could last for two years, but this person never really understood why you were doing the pink water tank. They didn't understand the back story of why it was important to you or what it meant. And instead you end up having this problem client for two years. 
if instead they had gone through a slower process where they could see videos of you, they could understand your story, it was all very genuine, then they would decide if they match you or not. And if they do, guess what? Your chances of having a better client and then getting a better outcome, which means you have a better chance of being published and a better cycle down the track, all of that escalates and is better for the architect. Mm, definitely. I, I mean, I've, I've experienced that personally with just the word of mouth factor, especially what happens like when you're working, I find working with architects, architects will refer you to builders, builders will refer you to subcon subbies, and then suddenly you're doing like, you're, you're doing like Facebook ads for like, you know, um, you know, concrete layers, and then you're like, <laughs> How do I how do I get here? This happened in the space of like four weeks. <laughs> you know, like this is really bizarre, and you can't really go back from there, um, or you can, but I mean, eventually you just go like. Uh, but it, it can be very tough with word of mouth, especially if you're getting a referral from a client who. I mean, I, I tend to, I help firms sometimes to track like where their, where their inquiries are coming from or like where projects are coming from and things like that. And, and referral is super powerful, I think, especially for emerging firms. I mean, you mentioned on your podcast that the typical pattern is you start a firm heavily around referral at the beginning. You start to build up a bit of status and stuff. But, um, but sometimes it can go wrong, right? <laughs> sometimes it can be very good though, but... Well, it also you know. depends on um, what sort of architecture you're doing and how big your network is. So if you're just really lucky, let's say you uh, born and bred in Melbourne, you went to all the right schools, you have incredible contacts with wealthy people who are hiring architects all the time, your referral network is incredibly it's valuable. Great. It's massive. <laughs> it's massive. And so, you know, uh, that's yeah. a great thing to follow. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you're doing something like timber skyscrapers and there's only a handful of people in the world who are doing that, your local referral network isn't large enough to support that niche. So that's when getting your ideas out into the world actually can really help you because now you might be finding a client in China, you might be finding a client in New Zealand because you're sharing what you actually want to do and that's the only way people are going to know to come knocking on your door with that sort of project. I think architects spend too much time with their ideas in their head and they just imagine that there's going to be this magical client who knock, knocks on the door. That never happens. Mm, never. Instead, the architect is constantly adapting to whoever walks through the door, which is why so many projects end up being a disappointing process. Instead of going, when the person walks through the door and says, I have been following you for years and I just, I love these timber skyscrapers. Let's do this properly. Yeah. Dream, dream uh, client. Yeah. Or like even the client comes in and goes, I was going to do a steel skyscraper, but I've been reading your blog and watching your YouTube videos and I've talked to the shareholders and they're on board. We're going to do timber. Yeah. Like, yes. They didn't even, they didn't even put timber skyscraper architect into Google and just like get some quotes. They like, they, they turned. <laughs> and that's what we're kind of like. like that's, that's the potential a little bit, I think. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I've definitely followed that process um, yeah. for the last 10 years. Uh, after I left architecture, I decided I didn't want shitty clients anymore. Yeah. And so being able to tell the world what you want to do brings in really happy, fun people, if that's what you put out into the world. Yeah. Something I've been actually, like, as far as preparation for talking to you, the one thing I, I thought about was sometimes I fantasize about... <laughs> What kind of <laughs> what kind of architecture? Like, if I was going to start an architecture firm this year, because it's something I wanted to do when I was in architecture school. But like, start a firm, like brand a firm, put up the website, like start going out there designing things. Or, or however, I sometimes think about like, what would I do? 
because I don't have to. I'm not forced to actually start an architecture firm. <laughs> Firstly, like, so I guess I want to know, like, you see so many firms run in so many different ways like we both do. Maybe would you be able to, like, map out a little bit for me, like, what the most important areas that you would focus on in your, in your new firm that you're starting? So, like, Nick Granley's Architects. Yeah, um, I have gone through that thought process on a couple of different levels. Yeah. So one is... I knew you had. I knew it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I still enjoy designing things. Yeah, yeah. And so still... I've still got my license yeah. and I, yeah. you know, I do sketches for people, you yeah. know, not professionally. Yeah. It's more Just like... fun. Yeah, it's yeah. still fun to design. I think there's two things. One is for me personally, I would like to do architecture again, but not having to run it as a business. So, mm. but that's a very... The retired, uh, like, the, yeah. The, yeah, okay. So, I, th I think architecture as a hobby is an amazing idea. Oh, great hobby. Um, but that's completely <laughs> separate. The, yeah. But if I was to start a firm, and let's say this was 10 or 15 years ago, I think I'd be way more conscious of building a team, and I'd build it more like a startup. Yeah. Obviously, coming out of the startup world, I, I love the startup world, and I love the knowledge there. But I would do two things. I'd start off with a really strong team. I'd have a really good designer, somebody who's really good at marketing, and then somebody who's really good at detailing and documentation. So those three aspects that make architecture. Yeah. And the marketing person, obviously, would probably be doing sales as well. But they're telling the story of the firm. And those three people would be a very formidable uh, team. Whereas what we tend to do is we all go to architecture school. We all want to be designers. And so three designers team, team up do no marketing, and then somebody yeah. eventually figures out that they've got to do the documentation. Um, so that would definitely change it. The second thing I would do is I would treat all new architectural firms like startups, and I think this should be taught in universities. Mm -hmm. So things like uh, the Lean Startup, there's a book out mm -hmm. there, which is a great idea, but this concept of how do you test an idea and validate it with the least uh, expense possible. So instead of going into um, the architectural world and saying, I am going to do this type of building and I'm going to change the world, being able to figure out, well, are there actually people who want that sort of building and how would I test that? And also getting away from going, I am going to design this type of building. I think personally, I'd be much happier going, I want to solve a problem. What is the problem I'm trying to solve? The difficulty with that, of course, is you, it may not end up being bricks and mortar, which is... Yeah lead you down all rabbit holes. You might end up just building Bowerbird. Might, might build Bowerbird. <laughs> like, literally, like, that's yeah. what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a, it's a very different way to build a firm yeah. because now you can go, okay, if I want to do, um, let's say, mixed-use residential buildings made out of timber which are up to five stories yeah. high to mimic Barcelona. Yeah. Okay, how would I test that? Like, what would I have to do to get that project up and running? Well, I know that I'm probably going to have to go talk to developers so that I can understand what the pressures are. And they may tell me that it's very hard to build things above three bedrooms. So you get that little bit of information and you keep going and you keep going. And then once you think you can do something, then getting your pilot project done. So then you can go, here is the project that I wanted to do and then market the hell out of that project. And also tell the story of you doing all this research yes. leading up to it. Yeah. Because even if you don't have the project, telling people about what you actually want to do is almost the same thing. Because mm -hmm. eventually somebody knocks on your door saying, I've heard about you trying to do this project mm -hmm. or this type of project. We want to be involved. Yep. And then once you've got that, then everything's off and rolling. I think that's why, like, okay, I've got two 
I've got like two or three contemporary examples I can think of of people that have done that and it's been super impressive. I think Nightingale is obviously... Yep. I would try and basically build my architecture firm to just be by basically Nightingale, like in some in some respects, in terms of feeling like it's like it's a community organisation, like all these aspects. It's it's doing uh, unsolicited architecture in a way, like it's just sort of initiating its process, um, using the power of like like this is what I think it comes down to. Like you're using the toolkit of architecture, the representational like abilities to create things that don't exist and have people start buying into them like they're kind of real and it's that it is that like that startup thing was like it's the MVP kind of version of the thing and what's really interesting with Nightingale is it's rethinking the actual process so as architects we get taught a really rigid process super rigid so Client comes to you client dictates brief client has budget then we go design documentation, construction. Yeah. And it's no you know, surprise that we keep ending up with similar results where we get frustrated because uh, budgets were slashed, controlled, you know, the client had mm. very different objectives to us. Mm. Well, if you're not happy with the outcome, change the recipe, mm. which is what Nightingale has done. Change the funding model, change the positions of power in that structure yeah. so that you can actually achieve the outcome you're trying to yep. get to. Yep. Another example was um, Anthony Anthony Martin, uh, M-R-T-N. Um, I saw him talking about he volunteers at a surf club on a beach somewhere. Yeah, down at... Um, yeah. Um, down on the coast. Down the coast. Yeah. And, you know, he just... Him and his, him and his team or whatever just knocked up, um, knocked up some great renders of a new surf club for his surf club. Just so that, because they were having a hard time getting anybody to chip in some money, any government people. And then people start, like the project went viral, like hashtag viral, this surf club. It's not even a real surf club or something. And this is my memory of the story anyway. But there was so much enthusiasm around this thing. And then the local, the local mayor or whatever made it his like, his poster piece. Like, and then the whole thing just started, this, this ball started rolling and all of a sudden there's a surf club being built. And it's like, this is a process that just happened, you know, like that's, but, but that, it's so, this sort of stuff is so like postmodern on the rigid sort of five step thing. I have to wonder if originally that was implemented for a reason. Like, I think there must've been some wild west time when architecture just got done in absolute random ways and no one knew what to really predict out of the process or what's the, I'd, I don't know the history of that. I'm not sure, but I'd speculate to say that until recently, your ability to distribute that idea was incredibly limited. So you could, yeah. you could do a mock-up, and sure, you can take it to council, but council just thinks you're this kook of an architect, yeah. and maybe if you nagged them for long enough, you'll eventually yeah. get this thing up and running. But you know, fast forward to 2018, and you go, ah, oh, I've just put a photo on Instagram, and 10,000 people have liked this project, and now everybody in the town have yeah. thrown their weight behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly you're connecting with people who have either influence or wealth or whatever it is, the ability to help you make that project happen. Yeah. That's the difference of where we've gotten to with networks. So I, I think that does change architecture. And I think, I think the, the innovative architects of the future are going to be really thinking about not just what they're creating, but how they're doing it. Mm. And we're going to end up with some really different models. And some of those models will challenge our idea of what we think architecture is. 
Because traditionally what we do is if anybody strays too much, we kick them out. We mm. give them a new name. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> when you look at, we talk about architecture as, you know, everyone's running off to do parts of it like, you know, project management or wayfinding or, you know, there's a thousand engineers now. But they've all specialised somewhere along, you know, focusing on uh, a part of architecture and done it really well. So I, I wonder how far you can stray until people call it something else. But yeah, probably not too far. I mean, I remember reading Rory Hyde's book about, you know, new sort of all these global um, examples and precedents of what people are currently doing that's kind of, they're architects, but they're not really doing architecture. And it really raised that point of like, you know, if it's if the problem doesn't require a building, then we don't do one, we'll do something else. And what you what you have at the end of the book is as fascinating fascinating as it is but you've just got like a bunch of architects saying that like you know there was a problem with the city so we did a we did a campaign of stickers and then you're like yeah but it's it's good but it's not like the i don't know maybe i'm a little like old school in that sense where i'm like i i, I did a lot of that stuff like in uni afterwards where it was like this sort of this process you completely break down the process but i just think like well, that's that's still in in some parts of the world, but it's so out in Australia. Like, I, you know. well, it's also dependent on what the outcome is. Yeah. So if there's, and I may get this story mixed up, but I think yeah. the story goes along the lines of, uh, I think it was maybe Six Degrees did a review of Sydney for the 2000 Olympics yeah. about their laneway culture. This was. Um, you know, ramping up to the Olympics and seeing why was Melbourne thriving and Sydney was struggling. And they, the analysis said that it was something to do with liquor licensing. And so there was this issue where the price to be able to sell alcohol in Sydney was so high that it only allowed for super clubs. So you got rid of all these tiny little venues that could open up on alleyways and, you know, sell a few glasses of wine. Mm. And you think, isn't that fascinating? You change this one law and you have the ability to impact a huge amount of the built environment. And I've always remembered that thinking, sometimes it's got nothing to do with bricks and mortar. Mm. Sometimes it's about changing one little thing which triggers a whole series of possibilities. But what's kind of, that is so attractive as something to like do, but the, like the problem with that kind of work, well not the problem in terms of the outcome, but the problem is that like nobody got paid to solve that problem. And that's like, there's no, there's, it's hard to find a business model around some of these things. But like, one thing that definitely works is like, you've got examples of like Trius Studio just talking recently about how they're, and they spoke about this on an earlier episode of this podcast, but about how, you know, their first clients came from competitions and they were residential clients where they had seen it you know, an entry that they had done in a residential competition and said, that looks amazing, you know, because it was on display at an exhibition or whatever, and then they ended up kind of doing that kind of work. So it was a perfect example, but at the end of the day, it was still a building. It's still that unsolicited process. But it, when it goes to, like, not building, well, it just gets super Well, there's two things there. Messy. One is that not everything has to be related to your business. So That's true. you can also see that there's overall structures that you want to change. And so you want to apply some of your time to it and you volunteer that time in the hope that you will make the world a better place yes. or you'll change yeah. things. The other thing is when you get involved with those sorts of projects, that may actually end up driving your entire business. You imagine mm. if you mm. were driving laneway culture in Sydney and you just are constantly talking about this, you're, you're, you are the go-to person when the media have any issues about yes. uh, laneways. Yes. 
guess what? So when people are trying to create laneway cultures, maybe not just in Sydney, but around the world, people are going to come and contact you. But you may also get projects within Sydney mm. because you've mm. studied like, how do you create these cultures? What yep. makes for these yep. spaces? Yep. Yep. So we can actually really tie into... 100%. 100%. Like, like um, Nick Brunson in the first episode of this podcast, before he started post-architecture in Perth, he started Space Market. And this was around real advocacy for the idea that so much space was vacant in the city. And we need to find ways to start turning it into like little shared offices and co-working spaces and stuff like that. And then from that, like being a real advocate on that issue, it became known as the guy that you go to when you don't know what to do with a space or a building or a dead part of the city. He's the guy you go to. And in many cases, Post is the architecture firm that's going to be able to solve that problem. And so, yeah, I'm imagining that scenario before about fixing the drinking laws. That's the sort of person that I would see, you know, at an international, like, you know, at the... British Architecture Annual Conference talking about how a couple of advocacy moves they did changed, you know, the entire laneway culture of Sydney or whatever, and that would just be a, a catapult into... But this is the thing that comes back to, I think, episode, like, five or six of your podcast, and everyone should listen to it, but it spoke about how there are sort of tangential benefits to publication. And I really like that you touched on the point that it's not always somebody picking up the magazine and ripping out the sleeve and uh, ripping out the sheet and putting it in their drawer and coming back to it three years later, although you mentioned that that has happened a lot of times. But it's the, it is actually important to have a bit of status and a bit of reputation. And in other careers, that's seen as self-evident, completely obvious that you need to have, you build a reputation over the course of a career. Um, but it, when you said it in the podcast, you and Ben spoke about it, it almost sounded like, a little bit uncomfortable to, I, think I guess, because that because it seems like it creates a system of some people are winners and others are losers kind of thing. But that's but that is the kind of thing that we're in, even though we don't talk about it because we're an in, like a profession. Well, there's the reality is that if you're putting a building out into the public sphere, mm. you are in the public domain. So we do it vicariously anyway. Yeah. So we've got to understand that when we do things, it has consequences for other people. The, and you'll probably be dragged into all sorts of debates. Imagine you're doing massive skyscrapers in a city. Guess what? When there's a debate around massive skyscrapers, you're probably going to be the person that somebody comes knocking on your door at some point because you're, you're involved in that. Um, the other part is you think about all the architectural heroes you've ever known. Every single one of them is known to you because they had a public profile. If they didn't have a public profile, you wouldn't know them. They would be, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, self, yeah, yeah, absolutely. it's a self-evident yeah. truth. Yes, of course. Um, and so I, so a story that uh, comes to mind is this idea, if you, if you ask an architect, what do you believe in? And they'll say, I believe in good design. And this is one of these weasel words that means <laughs> absolutely nothing. Now, as soon as you, you can say that amongst friends and you can say it when you don't have to stand up on a stage. As soon as you have to stand up on a stage, you have to have a point of view. You have to, like, because that doesn't mean anything. Like, do you believe what? Do you believe in urban sprawl? Yes or no? Like, I personally don't believe in urban sprawl, so I have to choose that. And now I have to. That's part of um, the person you are in the public realm. So I think it's really beneficial for architects to actually do that because it refines their thinking about what it is that they would actually work on, and then reject projects which don't fit into. Um, whatever you stand against or for, you know, you, 
instead of just going, oh, it just came through the door, so I'm going to take it because it's worth some money. If you've got that public profile, now you have to actually own it and you have to be responsible for it. Mm. That's a little bit of a tangent there. But, mm. Mm. Um, but I think most architects are a little bit afraid of that because there's consequences to it. But that's part of... I think there are consequences that it puts a bit of a target on your back that there's, you know, for every one Le Corbusier, there's like probably 100 million architects of his generation that are just, who knows what happened to those guys. Yeah. And like there is a sort of relevance, irrelevance thing that happens in the industry. And when you're relevant, you get all the perks, you get all the attention. Um, that's increasingly changing. Bowbird and, and, and like the media are starting to, you know, really pick up on so many different kinds of work. Um, but you know, it doesn't, it sort of sucks to be a bit of an irrelevant, you know, to be a bit irrelevant in your career, especially because people that start architecture firms are usually like 20 years into their architecture career. Like there's a lot, like there's a lot of people leaving work in like larger firms. They've got to that kind of project architect level. Then they've gone, you know what, I think I'm going to try and finally get to implement some of the stuff I want to design in this world. They start their firm and then it's like the journey sort of can start back at it's zero at that point a little bit, can't it? Yeah, because I, I don't think they've actually followed the path which would lead them to that outcome. Yeah. So you could have all these dreams and you've got these ideas, but you're stuck in your bedroom doing some drawing. And this idea that the drawing and the project will lead itself, mm. where somehow it's a, a pure meritocracy, where by doing great work, somebody yep. will come knocking on your door and yep. then celebrate it. Yep. That's not actually what's happening. It's, it's about being able to share those ideas with as many people as possible. The more people who understand what your idea is, the more people that can actually come to you to achieve it. Mm. Otherwise, you're basically hoping that one day somebody will come knocking on your door. And in my mind, that's lazy. Mm. So if you want to be lazy and you don't want anything to happen, you can't complain in 10 years that, oh my God, why hasn't somebody knocked on my door? It's because you haven't actually gone out to the world. Right. That's probably a little bit harsh. But. No, dude, it's it's so true, and I think everybody who works in architecture knows like knows a handful of those kind of like jaded ten to fifteen year in architects that are just sort of like nothing's really changed. They've just been on this sort of hamster wheel, and they haven't really they, they've it, running their firm has been more like a job than a career. Um, and you know they're, they're they're kind of sad to be around, but you can sort of see that there is that sort of that that laziness or that sort of sense of entitlement. Like you know the world of work I do is great, so you know where's my where's my architecture award? Where's my where's my cover of design? Like why hasn't that just come to me? Well, <laughs> you know, and also fear. Yeah, it's scary. I think the good thing in architecture though is generally it's a very uh, beneficial media world. Yeah, like there's very few projects where you really end up with controversy. And those projects end up being massive yeah. cultural projects. And let's face it, if, you, if you've got an opportunity to be working on one of those, you've already made it. Yeah. So for the average architect who's talking about simple things like, I don't know, maybe um, greening the streets around their neighbourhood, it's a really simple idea. Mm. It's not like people are going to hate you for no. planting trees. No. It's, it's a generally a positive thing because you're contributing to your uh, local community. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a scary thing. Yeah. It's just saying, I've got an idea here which I believe in and I stand by it. That's, I mean, we've got to do a talk soon on yeah. um, personal, personal branding. Brand. <laughs> and we're coming up with some ideas of how you structure that. But that's one of them. You, you have an idea and you stand behind it. Yeah, so going back to the idea of like starting the, the startup-esque architecture firm, and I think this comes a little bit to that personal branding 
stuff we did, but also to the example of the of the of the the, the architect who's been in the big firm, um, and then finally made the plunge, and they start with their first kind of like opportunity with a client, and they go from there. I've always thought about starting this firm that I would actually spend the first like three years before starting the firm, sort of unofficially starting the firm by creating videos and writing and creating content and trying to build up that personal brand to the point where I do have a lot of inbound leads that I've got enough that I can be picky with, then start the architecture firm and start hiring people and actually doing projects. Which is the hard bit. Yeah. So you've got that lead time where you're not generating income. Yeah. But I, I agree with you. I think um, that concept of starting a firm, you choose an amazing project, which is your outcome. Yeah. That's what you need to achieve to get up, to jump through all those levels and to be at that higher level. And then you're right. You can tell the entire story as you go, like the design process. What, what are the qualities that you're looking for uh, in that building? Where is it going to be placed? How are you going to find people? Take people through this entire journey. It's like a Kickstarter campaign. Mm. And then once you achieve the goal, wow. that's. Yeah. And But now you're heading in the right direction. The alternative to that is you go and do your parents' deck. And they tell their friends and they you get more decks. <laughs> and suddenly you're doing decks all over Australia, not making any money. But Nick... Glenn Merkett did decks for 30 years. Are you saying Glenn Merkett didn't start his firm the right way? I'm just saying there's alternatives. <laughs> and the, you know, we're designers. We should yeah. be thinking creatively yeah. about how we work. We can agree that it's like sometimes those small things might not be the best, you know, application of your what you've. Well, they could be, but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, well, good, good work anybody. begets good work. Yeah. Bad work begets yeah. uh, more bad work. Yeah. So you end up with a spiral. Yep. You end up with a double spiral down if you're doing work which isn't all that great because you can't share that with the world. You can't publish it because it hasn't reached mm. that criteria. So you're killing off your marketing cycle mm. in your architectural firm. Mm. Whereas if you have one good project, you finish that good project, you get it photographed, now you can share it with the world. You can start to build an audience. That's a positive cycle. It doesn't mean that you end up with clients rushing through your door in six months. It's still a build-up, which may take five years, but you keep doing that cycle, yeah. and suddenly the people knocking on your door are doing amazing projects instead of you still being stuck with no public face, um, no inbound leads. You're basically stuck doing whatever referral comes in from mm. those random projects that you've sort of been accepting. Mm, mm, mm. So, starting your firm, Nick, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think like if you were going through that little bit of like setup period or that, or you're starting the ball rolling and you're thinking, okay, I've got a five-year plan or maybe a 10-year plan, but let's say it's five years, I've got a vision of the kind of prestige or, or status I want my practice to have in five years' time. Yep. Like, I want us to be invited to talk at things. I want us to be in lots of magazines. And, you know, these sorts of things that are going to really make the, give the perception that this is a really good practice. Um, where do you sort of start the ball rolling? Because you've got this myriad of different channels and formats and video and photography and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. And you've got all number of things that you could possibly do and you've only got so much time. Is there certain areas that you really focus? Well, the I think the way I'd start is uh, think about the personality that you want your company to have. So instead of thinking about branding and brand perception, yeah. all these big marketing terms, Graphic which, design. yeah, like. all, all this stuff that 
scares some architects because it's very different to this idea that we create amazing work and that naturally brings in more work. Mm -hmm. But if you think about what's the personality of my company, and that may not just be external, it could be internal as well. Like, do you want to have fun? Do you want to be super serious? Do you want to be experimental? Do you want to be doing large projects or small projects? And then realizing that the public perception of your company is not going to be super broad. It's going to be quite focused if it has some sort of personality. You think about the people that you know, you know the type of work they do, and if it's into some sort of mold. And it doesn't mean that you can't change that over time, you can. And it doesn't mean that it has to be all the same types of projects. It could be an idea which threads through them. But if you can map that out, then you know what you're aiming for. And then you just need to keep talking about whatever it is that you care about. Again, come, coming back to that timber building example. Mm -hmm. If your objective is in five years to be doing timber buildings all around the world, well, I guess a good starting point is to share content around timber buildings. Like, look at who else is doing this. Interact with those people. Start connecting with them on social networks write about it, podcast about it, make videos about it, go traveling the world, but tell the world so that whenever people think of timber buildings, you're coming up in their mind because you're the one that's most focused on it. And then obviously you need to figure out a way of getting that first project up. And that could be doing um, mock-up projects, but same thing, it's showing that you're thinking about it. And then eventually you find that client who does want to do that project. And I guess that ball's rolling. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much like, that sounds like a really solid process. I think like then the only role that sort of social media plays is just about documenting what you're doing. I mean, if you're treating it like I'm passionate about it, whether or not anybody's watching, I'm doing it. Like whether it's timber buildings, that'd be crazy if one person was just on their own working on like five story timber buildings. <laughs> like just really love those timber buildings. But like, but you know, it's, but that is it. I mean, there's, there's something, but also, um, I think when I've when I've brought this up with with firms, they're they're sometimes a little bit concerned about being about being pigeonholed into an area. But we spoke about this ages ago that it's like you do need to pick you need to pick some things or some area that you're you yeah. you can't you can't just be like the mix of everything. Well, choose something and do it really well. Yeah. So if you do if you're doing uh, let's say timber buildings. Do the timber building, maybe it's a timber house, but do that so well that you are thought of as the number one person to go to for that timber residential. Mm. Once you've done timber residential, you can expand yep. into something else. Um, or vice versa, let's say there's just another, um, it's a work process. So instead of it being about a, a building type, maybe it's about workshopping projects where you are convinced that you need to run a workshop with every single client to actually uh, engage them in part of the process and that's how you get your outcomes. That's got nothing to do with timber buildings, how high it is or anything like that. That's part of the process. And you can talk about workshopping, you can talk about X, Y, um, and you, that's what you get known for. So it's just a, you don't have to be pigeonholed in that way. Mm. Okay, I think we're almost at an hour so I just want to ask you about the podcast that you've just created with Ben, your co-founder at Bowbird. Uh, I've been listening to it and it's very interesting because I get so many questions about how to get published, what do you need to do to get published, which magazine should I choose, um, what do my photos need to be like, does the house need to have furniture, all these different things. People asking me, I've got no idea why, but every single question I've ever had about 
publications and getting published for architecture has been answered definitively in the first six episodes that I've listened to. And I don't know what's going to come in the next 12 <laughs> because it must be things I've never even thought of before. But I'm really, but, but this podcast is, it's a, so tell us a little bit about it. It's like a 17 part, just a one-time thing where you almost did like, um, like a, you know. What, we, we just sat yeah. down, it's like a series. Yeah, like a series. Yeah. So we decided to do a series because we're time poor like anybody else. Yeah. And we knew that committing to doing a podcast every week, we would be traveling or doing something and we'd... we'd it's hard to be consistent with that. And, which is probably yeah. a lesson for architects as well. Mm. And then we also felt that we, you know, Ben's a writer, I used to blog, but writing is actually much harder because you're so focused on getting every word absolutely perfect. Yeah. Whereas podcasting, we could share the knowledge, which we've been gathering for like years now because building it up around publishing, we have to think about this stuff a lot. So we wanted to make a fixed series and run through all the questions that our users have. But the big thing for us is, because now we're jumping all over the world, so we're looking for bowerbirders in about 20 cities at once, we need to be able to share the knowledge which is stuck in our heads and give it to all these people so they can go share it with their local communities. So that was really the big motivator, is being able to have a, a place to point people and say, listen to this podcast, and by the end of it, you should understand everything that we know about media, at least from our perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, so far that's was straightforward. You know, sat down for a day and we just talked. And then as a true example of the power of Bowbird, built a Bower kit around the podcast. <laughs> and then within 24 hours, I saw it on Design, <laughs> Design Milk. It was like all over the architecture media. People, like, um, I don't know who tweeted it, but they had 2.8 million followers. And all of a sudden, they're tweeting about this podcast. I would love to log into your like <laughs> your li your libs no, just like your your libsyn dashboard or whatever you're using yeah. to host your podcast, and just see what your download stats are for the first. Yeah, well, it's, and it's one of those topics that every architect can listen to. Yeah, it's fixed, so it's yes. not like they're committing to listening to this for a year. Yeah, they can get in there for a day or two, understand. Um, it, yeah. What, how media works, but also understanding how media works today. Yep. So there's a lot of like, what I call mythology, which sort of gets passed down from generation to generation. And it's basically because media is moving so quickly, it doesn't apply. So you have to rethink it. Yes. So that's one of the things we wanted to share, uh, especially when we, we jump into these different communities now. So for example, um, I was in Vancouver in May, then Chris from Bowerbird was in Portland, we're about to jump up to Brisbane, and like we're just jumping all over the place. And we realize that there's these different cultures which build up uh, in cities, because architects tend to be quite city focused, at least with their communities. And their perception of what you can do with media and what you can't do changes, just because of what's been passed around. And once you step out of your own city, and you realize that you're dealing with a global network, mm. you go, oh, actually, no, mm. this works a little bit differently. Well, I mean, the podcast is very candidly capitalist in a way. Like it just, it just, you, you go in there, there's, there's tones of like talking about the economics of how the media business works and sort of under, like you strip off a lot of the romance a few episodes in and just talk about what your role in, role is in this media as a content provider, what those expectations are, how to do well in that role. And then the rewards that come from that, there's this um, reciprocity between the, the, the architect and the publisher, and we're all in this thing together. We're all trying to build our businesses and, and you know, make a living. And, you know, so then everything that stems from that is just kind of sensible guidelines on how to just do that job the best. And it really takes a lot of the, 
you know, the um, the gatekeeper scared feeling away from it because you really get into the trenches on, hey, these are people that they have a job to do. This is how they do their job. You, your job is to make them their life easier. And even Ben comes along with this kind of like, you know, when I was doing a lot of journalism, you know, I was a pretty lazy dude. If you give me a PDF rather than a Word document, that might turn me off the project because it's tough to copy paste. You know, like these, these are really, this is just, it's just absolute, yeah, it's good information. It's thinking about things in a rational way. Yeah. And that was one of the problems. We were coming across people who were, had this perception of media, which was based on fear, but also based on, I guess, different people controlling different aspects of the media. And so it was being sold as uh, status. Mm. Like if you get into this publication, mm. everything will change for you. It's like being in the popular group at high school or something. It's like, oh, I just don't know. Like I don't think the popular group likes me. And <laughs> but it's not like that at all. It's the popular business. And if you ask them, okay, show me some stats. Yeah. Let's do some maths here. Let's yeah. do some numbers. Like what are you actually trying to achieve? Are you trying to reach an audience? How big is the audience? Let's map out what happens if you get published three times instead of once. Mm. And once you start rationalizing it like that, you go, actually, there's a real cause and effect in actually getting published. And there's a way that you increase that. And the, the old way was magic. It was like everyone was telling you that some sort of magic was happening as soon as a project got printed. And that's pretty much bullshit. Yeah. Um, so again, that's the way we approach it. We, uh, we try to get to the nuts and bolts of how it actually works. But then we try to show, I guess, the community how you increase the quality of it overall. And that's where you start to create better content that you can provide to journalists. So it's sort of two things. It's opening it up, showing how it really works, and then providing a few, I guess, magnets to show how you can actually make the whole thing better and be part of that. Beautiful. So everyone can go on to iTunes and just type in Bowbird and you'll find it. I notice that when you do look at the Bowbird podcast, first suggested item beneath is my podcast. So <laughs> while you're there, I mean, clearly you're already listening, but <laughs> it's nice to get back. But that's the great thing because there's basically three, just really quickly, there's like three podcasts that have basically popped up in Melbourne in the last year. Mm. There's this one, which I've sort of done five episodes of. There's the New Architects Melbourne, which was also a fantastic series of interviews. And hopefully they come back and do another series. And now there's the Bowbird one. So we've got these three. And the great thing about iTunes is it tells you all three of them right there and suggests them to you. So I guess that's a, you know, the way Nick and Ben did that podcast where they sat down and how long did it take you in? in... It took us one day. One so day. Started so at nine, finished at four in the afternoon. So they put down one day on this thing, uploaded it, immediately people are discovering it. it even though they're promoting it, it's still getting discovered because there's a lot of people on iTunes that are being pointed towards the podcast from all over the world. Um, and that's kind of like a call to action that it doesn't have to be something that you commit to forever. If you're an architect thinking about starting a podcast, it could just be a one-day thing and then you upload it and that's your, your point of view on a certain issue of maybe it is the timber buildings, whatever. You just, you know, you, that's and, how you do it. And when we recorded it, it was super simple. Yeah. All we did is we created a dot point outline and a lot of that content we have talked about previously. We do webinars and we do get invited to talks. So it's stuff that we know. But when you just put it in a dot point form, and you have two people, that's the other trick. Yeah. If you have two people, having a conversation about stuff that you already know about is pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Yeah, and you just run with all the mistakes, you just go straight through yeah. it. And you know, that's the other little tidbit for architects is relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. You not being perfect actually comes across as you being genuine. Yes. We sometimes get 
you know, stuck in uh, perfectionism where we're trying to make everything perfectly shiny and everything lines up. But that's the opposite of how we engage with people. We actually want to feel like that person on the other end is human. So sharing some of the, the uh, things which are not perfect, you know, we all make mistakes, you know, we speak weird, we make weird sounds. Mm. Sometimes our minds get sort of sidetracked. You can keep that in because that's actually, yeah. it's a bonding sort of yeah. agent. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>